I call this the blood. Now, there's another title that I wanted to pick, but it is such a huge word that I didn't want to intimidate anyone. Efficacious. And all of you are like, what in the world is that? It is actually one of the greatest words. That's why I wanted to name this thing after it. Because it means effective. It means it works. It's able to perform. It is efficacious. Effective. You see that word F. Effective. It is always effective. Not just once. It always is effective. It's efficacious. Okay? It's a good word. Okay? I might throw it out a few more times. So now you at least know what it is. Let me pray before we get started, because to be honest, this message is over my head. I am too smallish. My intellect is too dim to be able to tackle this particular message. And yet it is so important for us to grasp. Holy Father, this is your message. You are the one that has built this truth. Throughout the ages and the generations, you set the stage for it. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would reveal it to our hearts and minds tonight. Lord, we must see this with the eyes of our soul. We must see it. Not just intellectually understand it, but see it. Lord Jesus, may it be our truth from heaven to us tonight. Lord Jesus, do this work in us. Amen. Now, if you've grown up around Christianity, you know about the blood of Jesus. If you don't, then you probably really have never been introduced to Christianity. Because Christianity hinges upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ. When we say, you know, what is Christianity? Well, most of us, in our simplistic understanding of it, are typically going to say, well, Jesus loved the earth or loved the world so much that he came and he died and he shed his blood and somehow he took our sin upon himself. And so those of us that believe in him will be saved and have eternal life. Now, that's a, a very simplistic description of Christianity. It has a lot more grandeur than that, a lot more substance than that. But in its very simple form, eh, you know, that's not bad. The blood of Jesus, like I, I was saying up here with the kids, blood is not a very attractive thing. And not many of us are going to put a high value on it. Ironically, we have a tendency to diminish the value of the shed blood of Jesus because most of us don't see value in blood. Remember how I was talking about fatherhood the other day? And I said, we have a tendency to relate to God as a father, accidentally even, in relationship to the, the relationship we have with our own earthly father. It's in like kind. Now, it's not that we are consciously saying, oh, he's like my dad. But we subconsciously say in the back of our mind, when we hear that God is a father, we go, so he's like my dad. And if we have a bad experience with our father, then we have a tendency to shuttle those attributes to God. And so that's a dangerous thing because God is the perfect father, the way a father ought to be. And most of us in the fatherhood camp aren't just perfect. We don't have our whole act together. And so we showcase attributes that aren't necessarily divine. Well, when it comes to blood, this is just an important thing to understand. We have a tendency to get squeamish around it. Okay, now, uh, I had my blood, uh, it wasn't drawn, I was, got, I was given some shots, and I felt this trickle down my left arm when it was happening, and it wasn't but a minute later that I was passed out. Okay, so blood has a weird effect on us. Now, here's what I want you to understand. God doesn't pass out at the sight of blood. 
This is actually very important. Could you imagine? Jesus comes in with the offering of the, you know, what he sacrificed on the cross and God passes out. Uh, he's like, that is absolutely disgusting. In, in 1 Peter, let me, let me make sure I get the, is 1 Peter 1.19, it actually calls the blood of Jesus precious. It is of such great value that we cannot even comprehend. And it is of that value to who? To God. To God, it is precious. Blood is what God needs to see. It's not what we need to see. The blood doesn't mean that much to us. If someone sprinkled blood in front of us and says, there, we'd go, thank you. Now I need to clean it all up. We do not understand. When I think of what used to happen in the Old Testament, the sacrifice and the Day of Atonement would, be take, it would take place before all the people. And then the blood would be taken into the Holy of Holies by the high priest, into the very throne room of God, to make a propitiation, which I'm going to explain this word to because it's very important. And the high priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy cedar, which was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, which is also the throne of God. The very place, it's also called the oracle in the Old Testament. It's the very place that God would speak. So it is symbolic on earth of the place where God is. And this lid of the covenant, or the mercy seat, is where the, the priest would sprinkle blood. Now what goes through my mind? Okay, now I'm human. Blood doesn't mean that much. It's just messy. Okay, now all I'm thinking about is they have this whole place, this whole holy of holies, plated in gold. They go to these elaborate links to make it perfect. Cherubim are sculpted. The Ark of the Covenant is built. It's extraordinary. And only one guy goes in. Once a year. And not to enjoy the furnishings. And then when he goes in, he messes it up. He comes in and sprinkles blood all over. You know, here's what's going through my mind. Who cleans this up? That's what's going through my mind because he's made a mess. Blood to us is messy. When, you, when, when one of my kids gets scraped or something, what is one of my first thoughts? Now, other than compassion, we need to fix it. But when they start walking through the house, you know, with a little drip going, it's like, not on the carpet. <laughs> not on the carpet. Our concept of blood is not God's concept of blood, which is just a strange thing. Now, if we can somehow get into God's mind towards this, it's symbolic of life to God, and it has value to God. The Old Testament... Lamb of sacrifice, which was on the day of the Passover, Eve, when the Israelites were to kill a lamb, and then they were to take the blood and stick it on the lintel or the doorpost uh, of their houses, so that when the angel of the Lord would pass over, when it, it would see the blood and choose, uh, say, okay, they're taken care of, and would pass over those houses. It was, but on the inside, the people... They were the ones dealing with the food, eating the food. They weren't seeing the blood because it was on the outside. The same thing is true. They would see the sacrifice, but then the high priest would take the blood into where God is. God needs to see the blood. When God sees the blood, he is satisfied. Okay? A little strange. You need to understand that God is the way he is. And it's very possible that we are the strange ones. Isn't that an interesting thought? We're always thinking, what's wrong with God? Well, could it be that we are not correct? We don't understand the value of blood. 
And we do not understand why God would be satisfied with blood. Couldn't he have come up with a different model? You know, on the Day of Atonement, it is so utterly bloody. The Brook Kidron, it literally flows down into the Brook Kidron, and the Brook Kidron floods with blood. There's Israel for you. There's God's country. Yay! That makes no sense to us. It is absolutely sickening. The cross was not very attractive to us either. It is the sight of sin. When you see something like that, it is truly the gruesomeness of sin to recognize what Jesus Christ has done for us. But first of all, when we're dealing with the blood, I want you to realize that for some reason, it satisfies God. There has to be blood shed. And if blood is shed, then it somehow deals with our sin. In the Old Testament, it would cover But what Jesus Christ has done deals with those sins. It doesn't just cover them. It washes them. It's very critical. Okay, let's let's get some raw material out here on the plate. 1 Peter 2. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. There's a threefold problem with sin. Okay, we have, we got issues down here. We pop out of the womb. And we have issues. Okay, now you could say, I've lived a pretty good life. It doesn't matter how good of a life you live, you have issues. It doesn't matter how many sins you can tally up, you have a issue, and it's called sin. Now you'll notice there's two different words here, sin and sins. If you study the book of Romans, you'll see a break. First, Romans 1 all the way through Romans 5, I think it is 5.13, deals with the concept of sins, plural. And it talks about the fact that Jesus and his blood is able to deal with those sins, to forgive us, to wash us, to purify us, to cleanse our conscience. He deals with the problem of these sins that we have committed in our life. And then from Romans 5.13 through around 8.39, it deals with the issue of sin. No S on the end, sin. Sin is your problem. It is my problem. So let's discuss it really quick. Sin, in the most simple way that I could come up with words to describe, is you sitting on the throne of your life. It's you in control. It's you saying, this life is mine. I want it my way on my terms. You are corrupted at the core. It's called in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, the old man. There is something wrong with you. It's also called the body of sin. There is a problem with you where your flesh has compulsions and it has instincts, and you find yourself, even though you don't want to do something, you still find yourself doing it. And the moment you make a pact with God to say, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to look this way when that happens. I'm not going to think these thoughts anymore. I'm not going to behave this way in these situations of crisis. When next time someone gets under my skin, I'm just going to love them. I'm going to hug them instead of hit them. We have these resolves of soul, but we still end up performing in our old pattern. That is known as sin. So we have sin, which just imagine this is a basic description. Self on the throne. I I described a throne up here on the stage. Well, Jesus isn't in it. You are. And that's your problem. Because the result of that, the result of you being in the wrong place in your life, is you have no power to perform the acts of righteousness, which is as you ought to be. You have no way of making this life work the way God intended it to work. You can't do it. 
You just can't. You do not have anything in you to be able to perform it because it's supernatural to live as God is. And you are not supernatural. You are very natural. And so there's a problem with you known as sin. But the result of this is that you wreak havoc, not on your own life only, but on every relationship around you. You are demonstrating something very opposite of God. Sin, could, you know, the, the term, I think it's hamartia. I'm not positive. I don't want to, I shouldn't even be putting it into a microphone when I say that. But it's to miss the mark. It's like an a, a archery term. And so God has a mark that you're supposed to hit, which is perfect righteousness. It's the image of Christ. It is who he is, the way he behaves, the way he thinks, the way he acts. This is the mark. And when you try and shoot it, being on the throne, you pull back your, your bow and it's like, it goes off in the opposite direction. You cannot hit it. So you miss the mark on a daily basis. And the result is sins. You are off kilter. And so what we're going to talk about today, it, you'll notice that quote down there. I'm going to go back to this threefold problem. But I said, what is sin? What are sins? The blood deals with our sins. The cross deals with our sin. You see, there's a problem with who you are. That's what the cross deals with. And there's, because you are off kilter, you are producing sins. And that's what the blood is all about. Now just imagine that we somehow likened coming into, well, let's, let's, let's say righteousness. This is a bad concept. It's not perfect, but it's a little metaphor for you. That to be able to enter into the king's presence, imagine that it was a cost. And you needed to pay a cost. And, you know, say it's $10 trillion, okay? And all of you are like, well, I don't have that. What? Well, you, you have to have it if you're going to enter the king's presence. And if you don't enter the king's presence, you're lost forever. Death. Destruction. It's like, well, I don't have that. Okay, now, this is, like I said, it's not a perfect illustration. But what the blood is, is it is payment for access into the holy of holies, into the very throne room of God. And it's a payment that you can't pay. Are you saying that God literally covered $10 trillion for me? Well, he covered a lot more than that. But when you actually take from his purchase and you say, he did it, he did it, and you accept that, you see it, you believe that it was for him, and then you actually say, I'll, I'll accept that, I'll accept that, I'll take that payment as my own. You literally can, by means of faith in that work, enter into the Holy of Holies. A place that you have no business going. You can't pay that. You have no means of coming up with that. Now, here's, this is just another wrinkle to it. Most of us, when, it, when it, we talk about starting in the Christian life and entering into the throne room of grace, we have an understanding that what Jesus Christ did for us was sufficient. And so we were able to enter into this engagement with God, this thing called Christianity, on on the, by the means and by the virtue of what he did. But now what? Because I have a hunch that some of you are still slipping up in your life. You're still messing up. Now how do you get in? we got a problem, don't we? Because Jesus paid it all. He dealt with our sins. Well, now you still, what if they keep cropping out? What if they keep coming? Now what do you do? Because that sacrifice 
and that blood that was shed for you, you already sort of used it up. And there's no way you can get back in. Because every time you leave, you know what it costs to get back in? Ten trillion. Wait a minute. I th Ten trillion, that's a lot of money. It was a lot once. Could you imagine every time? There's only one access into the throne room of grace, and it's the blood of Jesus. There's only one way to get in. Now, here's what we have a tendency to do, especially those of us that are on this path known as Christianity. We actually believe that Jesus has a standard. We actually believe that he wants to change us into a picture of himself. So we start being worked on by the Spirit of God. And suddenly, some of our old habits are fading away. And we're starting to behave a little better. There's no burping and scratching anymore. We're starting to actually showcase a little love over here. A little patience over here. You know what? We're, we're resisting the temptation over here. Hey, this is good stuff. So what we have a tendency to do is try and enter into the throne room of grace on our good behavior that day. It's like, you know what? I'm feeling pretty good today. And so there we are. We're trying to get in on our merit. Now, we all know that you can't originally get into the throne room of grace on your merit. But for some reason, we think that now since we've earned about you know, $20 of hard work and righteousness, we can somehow pay the $10 trillion off. Like we come with our $20 bill, and it's like, I had a really good day, God. What do you think? It's not sufficient throughout the rest of your life, no matter how much God is working in you. Did you know that there's still only one access into his throne room? It's the efficacious blood of Jesus that was good at the beginning, and it's still good today. There is no way you can ever whip up the $10 trillion life. There's not any amount of righteousness that is going to be built in you this side of heaven that could possibly substitute for what Jesus Christ did for you. This is a very important thing. I know this sounds like basic doctrine. Here's what I want you to understand. You can never get in to the throne room of grace outside of Jesus Christ. Ever. Not just when you start along this journey, but today. Tomorrow. There's only one way in, and that's through Jesus Christ. Now, I tried to describe it to the kids, and it didn't go over very well, okay? At least not in my mind. Hudson will probably be telling me 10 years from now that the most meaningful talk I ever gave him was this talk. But, uh, you know, there's still a little doubt floating through my head about that. <coughs> the only way in is with blood. That's the only way the high priest. The high priest could have been the most moral man in all of Israel. He could have dotted every I, crossed every T. The guy was being watched by everyone. He lived in the presence of God. He did the work in the temple. He could have had it all down pat. And he had to come in with the blood that was sacrificed. Otherwise, he'd be struck down dead in the presence of God. You have no other means of entry into the grace of God, into the presence of God, into the strength of God, into the power of God, into the joy of God, into the peace of God. There's only one way you could ever enter and it doesn't matter how good of a day you've had, or get this, how bad of a day you've had. It doesn't make any difference. There's still only one thing you should do. Paying penance over here going, yeah, I don't deserve to be in the presence of God. You never did. There is nothing you can do that can prohibit you from being able to enter. If I adopted, say, say that you're an orphan, and say you catch the heart of Eric Ludi, the father. And Eric Ludi goes out of his way and pays the price that is associated with that adoption and brings you into his family. 
and say you're a rather cranky kid, rather disobedient, rather rebellious, which Ludi kids could never be that. Did you know that you are still, by merits of my love and my adoption, part of my family, even though you act up? In other words, the only way outside of the grace of my fatherhood is for you to reject it and to leave my home. And to say, I don't want your fatherhood. I reject you out of hand and I'm leaving. That's called apistos, apostate in the New Testament. If you want to fall outside the banner of the grace and the merits of the blood of Jesus, you reject it out of hand and say, I don't want it. I don't need it. I have no use of it. And you leave to go on your own terms. That's not where most of us are. Most of us fall into the banner of adopted, yet rather cranky. We have a little attitude in our Christian life. We're not yet made perfect. And we have a little limp to our soul. We have a little blindness to our eyesight. We have a problem with our hearing spiritually. God says that no lame, no deaf, no maimed can enter into his presence. However, our king looks out upon you and he loves you. And our king's number one desire when he came to this earth 2,000 years ago was to rescue you, to make a way for you to come in. His goal is not to keep you out. That's what a lot of people have in their mind. He's rather picky. You know, he doesn't allow us in because we're not good enough for him. It's the opposite. He wants us in and he knows we're not good enough. So he comes and makes up the difference. That's the key of what propitiation is. That's what atonement is. It is making up the difference. We have one buck out of 10 trillion. He comes in and says, I'll pay the other 9 trillion, whatever comes after that. I'll make up the difference. I will fill that gap for you. You can't do it. I can. He came and made the difference. He reconciled the accounting books for us. He said, you're fine. That's extraordinary. But somehow we still have a tendency, if we knew that the only way to get in was to wrap ourselves in this cloak known as Jesus' righteousness, and we have to live in this cloak, you take off the cloak of Jesus' righteousness saying, I've figured out righteousness of my own. I've got it now. Thank you for giving me a head start, Jesus. So we put on the the cloak of Jesus' righteousness so that when we come into the presence of God, God has to see blood. He has to see Jesus. He has to see righteousness when we enter. So if we're not cloaked with Jesus, we have no business being in the presence of God. We can't enter in. It's actually more dangerous for us than anything. It's like taking communion the wrong way. It's serious stuff. So if we're cloaked in, in Jesus... We can enter in. We can abide in there, which is why it says, be in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are a new creature. That's why it says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the spirit, but after the, who walk not after the flesh. I'm glad I caught myself on that one, but after the spirit. In other words, if you are in Christ, if you are cloaked in him, then you can enter in and partake of his bounty. But we have a tendency to get cloaked in Jesus, and then Jesus begins to work upon us. And we're like, I think I have this. I think I'm getting it, Jesus. Okay, what you're trying to do is you're trying to work righteousness in me now. So I was in you, but now you are in me. 
And so we have a tendency to take off the cloak of righteousness and say, thank you for being in me. Now I'm ready to live this Christian life. The Christian life from A to Z is lived in the cloak of righteousness. Because no matter where you're at in your development, you're not finished. It's frustrating to us. Have you ever felt that frustration? It's like, why am I not a finished product yet? You are in process, and you are as you ought to be when you are cloaked in Jesus Christ, and you are obedient and presenting your body before him, saying, God, take these members, take these arms, these legs, these this, these eyes, this, this mouth, these ears, and use them for your service. And he's, he's changing us so that this world is now seeing him instead of us. But in the process, you're still weak. You are still vulnerable. Yes, you are being changed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, but do not take off the cloak of Jesus. That blood is still your only way in. So Jesus Christ's blood deals with, with the sins that you committed. And then you take in, you, you're adopted into his family. And you're cloaked in him now. And there are things that you are going to do, very likely, that aren't of Jesus. And they could be called sins. Most of us hate this topic. It drives us crazy because we're so frustrated with ourselves. And I want you to realize, there's only one thing to do when you stumble. Only one. Do not follow the enemy's bait, which is to pay penance in a, in a corner for a while. God doesn't want to talk with you. That's the first thing he's going to say. God's sacrifice was on your behalf, and now you've spurned it. You've slapped in the face the cross of Jesus Christ. Could you imagine, as a father, if my son, who is a loody, who has the privilege of being a loody, this is what the father's thinking, and I've taught you so much, you have so much that you've been groomed with, and you still show rebellion? Out! That isn't how a father's heart works. The merits of the shed blood of Jesus are for yesterday, today, and onward. You need the shed blood of Jesus just as much at the inception, just as much now as at the inception. You need it. So Paul would say, so should we go on sinning? If you're going to say, Eric, no matter what I do in this family environment, that I can get away with it, and I can just come cloaked in Jesus? Boy, this sounds like a fun thing. God would, uh, Paul would say, God forbid. Don't you realize why you're even being allowed into the presence of God? It's not so that you can dance around as a braggart and some proud idiot. God is bringing you in so that he can change you, so that he can deal with the problem of you, so that he can show this world who, you, who he is through your skin, through your obedience and through your actions. This is about something bigger than you. And if you haven't figured that out yet, then you haven't even begun Christianity. So if you have it right, you do not take advantage of this cloak. This cloak is an extraordinary thing. And the number one accusation that most people that believe in holiness, which is the shaping of our inward life, changing us to be like Christ, in the image of Christ, those people that are staunch on holiness, which by the way I am, the biggest fear of the blood of Jesus is that people are going to take advantage of it. And if people are taking advantage of it, then they don't deserve to have the merits of it. And I want you to realize that God created the tension here. God created an answer for everything you are going to go through in your life. He knows that you're weak, and he knows you need to be made strong. And he has done it, and he has done it once and for all. You do not need to sacrifice another bull or goat. 
out in the woodshed so that you can enter into God's presence. You do not need to do some great deed. You don't need to just let help some old lady across the street and then say, okay, I can come back into God's presence. That's like taking a $10 bill with a $10 trillion price tag and trying to convince God that it's, it's enough. You will never have enough. And that's the exciting thing about the cross. I will never have enough, but he always will be enough. There is nothing that could ever hinder me from entering into his presence and living there, no matter how difficult this life gets, no matter how many times I'm duped by the enemy. I can still get back up and come into his presence. God forbid that you ever take that as licentiousness, which is the term for basically saying, I can do whatever I want. I have no law. I'm not under any law. You are under the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus you are bound by a bond of love like a bondservant. He has given his life to you. You show love and respect back to your master. He has a job for you to do. If you understand what the gospel is, if you enter into his presence, you're changed by him. If you haven't been changed by him, maybe you haven't even been cloaked in Jesus. In other words, let's start at the beginning. If you've been cloaked by Jesus, then he brings you into his throne room. You know what's in his throne room? Some great stuff. There's a treasure chest over here. And he says, go, look, this is part of the purchase. I have invited you in, not just so that we can, like, talk, but so that I can share myself with you because you have a job to do, and it's so much bigger than you. Not only are you unworthy to come into my presence, and I've fixed that, the cross doesn't just deal with forgiveness. This is an important thing about the cross. Jesus Christ purchased something on that cross. And it was more than just forgiveness. And I'm going to go through. I'm going to show you all the stuff just associated with the blood of Jesus. He purchased Pentecost. Pentecost, the indwelling life of God. See, blood is life. He shed that blood to enable you to come in. And then he takes that life. And he says, you can have no part with me unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood. Unless it literally enters into you. You need to enter into Christ. And then you come into his presence. And then he enters into you. It's the most extraordinary thing. If all I was going to tell you is that you can actually be cloaked in Jesus for the rest of your life. And you can always have access into the throne room of grace. Boy, that would be good news. That would be sufficient. But that's just getting going. We haven't even started the journey yet. Because the reason he's allowing us in is so that he can rescue us. He wants us to come in, not just save our skin and make sure we don't go to hell. He wants us to come in so that we can partake of him. So he says, yeah, look at this. Over here. They're like, what, that? You want me to open that up? Yeah, open it up. And it's a treasure chest. You know what's in it? The armory of heaven. He says, yeah, you see that armor over there? Put it on. Well, why would I need it? Because you are in hostile territory, buddy. And the enemy is out to destroy you. So I'm not just going to give you the free pass to come into my presence. I'm actually going to make you strong. So that when you go out, you can fight. And you can make a name for me. You can showcase to this world my power, my strength, my glory. So I got some joy in here for you. In fact, it's a bottomless treasure chest. You cannot get to the end. Have you ever seen like Mary Poppins? This is better than Mary Poppins. Her carpet bag. Beats it hands down 10 billion times over. This is the ultimate carpet bag, okay? You dig into it and you pull out truckloads of jewels. 
There is grace to be had, and it's bottomless. Peace, love, everything you could need for life and godliness is there. How do, how do you get in? That should be your question. How do I get it? I just told you. Clothe yourself in Christ. It's him. He's done it. Now, here's one of the most critical things. I know I've said that a few times, but how do you access this within? I don't want you to just access it in your head. You've already known this. You've known it for years, but you're still standing outside of his throne room. What's wrong? It's like being an Israelite and standing in the wilderness going, oh, if only we could have the land of promise. The throne room of Jesus is the land of promise. So why in the world aren't we living in there? Why are we on the outside bemoaning our sin? I can't believe I still keep stumbling over that exact issue. So sick of myself. So tired of this. We're standing out here. And the enemy has us exactly where he wants us. So this is, I know it seems like it's taken forever to get to the threefold problem with sin, but I'm, I'm here now. We've got a problem with God. Or I should say God has a problem with us. And that's sin. It's a separation, a broken fellowship due to our rebel stance. Okay? We also have a problem with ourselves. And that is, we have guilt. When our conscience is awakened and we begin to realize the standards of heaven, what's one of the first things we realize? Boy, I've blown it. I have no business in the presence of God. And we have an estrangement that that creates. In other words, we, a distance. We don't know how to talk with him. We feel awkward. We feel like he doesn't want to talk with us. And by the way, this isn't just at the beginning. If you don't understand the power of the blood, then you will be experiencing this throughout your Christian walk. Because the enemy will make sure of it. Because the third thing is, there's an issue with Satan. Satan, he's known as the accuser of the brethren. How does he accuse you and how does he get away with it? He leverages your guilt, your sense of righteousness within your soul. And you know you violated it, and guess what? He, pri he uses that as a pry bar to just make you miserable. He's like, boy, you blew it. You have no business talking to God, do you? I just give it up, you know? Live in sin for a season, buddy, because he's not going to want you now. I, you know, we could talk about it in here and it sounds stupid. Why would any of us fall for it? He's an expert at it. Remember how I've said in the past, don't try and match wits with Satan. He's really good at what he does. But Jesus has given you the solution of how to hit Satan in the teeth. And boy, it feels good. Because we have, you know, we're these little lambs hitting the ultimate, you know, lion, in the, roaring lion in the teeth and knocking his teeth out. And that is the blood of Jesus. Because what the blood of Jesus is, let's go down to the bottom of that page. It says the threefold rescue operation of the blood. It removes the separation between God and man. It removes it. There is no more debt that, can, that needs to be paid. Yes, we were guilty. But he paid the price. He covered it all. He dealt with it. So there is no more separation. There's nothing that can keep us out except for our own reticence and our fear that the enemy is going to play on our guilt the enemy knows what would keep us out of there because there's nothing on God's side of the ledger. Nothing. Manward. The blood of Jesus removes the estrangement. It purges our conscience. In Hebrews, it actually says that the shed blood of Jesus purges our conscience. It cleanses it to the point where the enemy, when he comes, he says, hey, remember what you did? You go, nope. I've moved on. Jesus Christ dealt with that. 
He can't leverage it against you anymore. If the enemy is leveraging anything against you, it's because you are not standing in the blood of Jesus. You're trying to get into the throne room or imagining that you need to get in the throne room on your own merit again. That isn't how you get in. You never could get in that way. The enemy wants to appeal to that thought. But you need to be better. You know the standards. You've been going to this church and they raise the bar really high. There are other people in that church that are living it. How come you aren't? You have no business even going to that church, let alone in the throne room of God. Classic enemy. That's how he works. That's how he works. And until you realize that there's only one way into the throne room of heaven, and there's only one way you could ever get in there, you can't get good enough. You can't get righteous enough. Even if you have the infilling life of Jesus, it's still a maturing process. You will still come up short of the debt you must pay to get in on your own merit. So don't even try it that way. That isn't the secret to Christianity. The secret is reckoning it as if it's done. And you abide in that reality. You yield to it. You present yourself to God and say, thank you. And when the enemy gets you into a corner, you appeal to the merits of the blood. When he says, what have you done today? You say, Jesus did it 2,000 years ago. That's my answer. That is always my answer. And when you get to the celestial city, as we were talking about in Pilgrim's Progress, you have to have the parchment. He was given the parchment at the cross. It's the blood of Jesus. That's your only access. It is Jesus Christ and his life is your only means of getting in. If you get to the celestial city and he says, what should allow you in? What is your evidence? What is your ticket? And you say, I received the shed blood of Jesus at inception, at the the point where I became a Christian. Jesus then taught me his truth and I really appreciated it. And I have tried to live it and I've lived it the best I could. You can't get in on that. That isn't your grounds for entry. The only grounds you will ever have, and that's even if you lived the ultimate life. If you were Hudson Taylor, if you were George Mueller, if you were Charles Spurgeon, if you were Amy Carmichael, and you get to that gate, and they say, what is your entrance? How could you possibly enter? It doesn't matter who you are, how great of a life, how triumphant of a life you've had. It's still the blood of Jesus Christ that is your entry paper. That is the only thing you can bring in. If you're going to come into the presence of God, you come in Jesus Christ. That is your only way in. So don't let the enemy fool you into thinking there's another way now that you have had the blood of Jesus. There is still only one way, and that is what efficacious means. It was good for you then, and it's good for you today. Don't let the enemy think that you've been booted out of his family, out of God's family, and that now you have to struggle as an orphan. You are God's, you were purchased by his blood, and he knows the battle that you are going through. And he says, when you are weak, come to me. Let me hit the enemy in the teeth. Let me train you how to fight this battle. You'll get better at this battle. Your little pile of money to come in will get higher. You might have a couple thousand dollars, but that's still short of 10 trillion. In other words, God is going to build you into a picture of himself. But never is it your merit. Now, you can look at, I'm going to skip that uh, today, uh, those two words, uh, good words. Uh, Let's just look at this list of 23 things. Now, this is my summation. There are more than this. However, these are the ones directly applied to the the blood of Jesus, okay? In other words, these are things, I, I, I call this, what was the precious blood of Christ for? Most of us would say for forgiveness of sins. 
Okay, I would like to have us expand that a little. And this actually still falls short of truly understanding what it is. Because the shed blood of Jesus, these are just direct references of the blood to something. But the blood purchases us an access. And that access is good for so much. Okay, I don't know why the number starts at four. I have no idea why. I think it's because the previous page has one, two, three. <laughs> and so somehow my uh, numbering went to four there. So sorry about that. Uh, four, for atonement. Uh, look at the word on the, on the first page, which is uh, kaporeth, which means mercy seat, a place of atonement, covering, propitiatorium, the place of sprinkled blood and satisfied justice. That's what atonement is. And the blood is good for it. It's satisfied justice. It's for a propitiation, a just and satisfying offering in our stead. It's good for our justification, which is a legal term. Before God, we are seen as justified. It's for the forgiveness of sins. It's for the remission of sins, the removal of them, the removal of the penalty, the removal of the, uh, the problem, for the cleansing, washing from all sin, for the purging of our consciences. If you have something that the enemy is trying to lever against you, trying to hold you down with, I want you to realize that the blood of Jesus is for that, that exact thing. The way it describes it in Hebrews is the sprinkling of the blood upon our conscience. And it purges our conscience of, of that guilt. That's what it's meant to do. So if you're finding a need for that, hey, this is good. It's for peace. It's for reconciliation under Christ. It's for righteousness. It's for the purpose of saving us from the wrath that will come. It's for the destruction of the devil. I love throwing that one in. The blood of Jesus was shed for the destruction of the devil. And so every time that you stand up and plead its merits in your life, it disarms the, the devil because he has nothing on you. And the blood is the evidence of that. It's a reminder of that. Walk in it. Live in it. If you had... Say you were a guy who really blew it in his past. You have a, you know, a family that you had, and you got divorced, and you have, have a very high alimony payment. And it's just it's a very difficult payment to make, and you have to make it every month, because if you don't, guess what? Police are coming after you. They're going to arrest you, and policemen really like to grind you into the dirt if you're a guy who isn't paying his alimony. That really irks them. That makes them mad. And you know this. And you've had people tell, tell you that. You always want to make that payment. If you don't make that payment, these guys are coming after you. Okay? And they'll get on your case and they'll make your life miserable. And so guess what? Faithfully, every month, even when it's hard, you're making the payment. Okay? You have high character. You're wanting to do the right thing. You care about your kids. You're making the payment. Imagine one day that you find out that there is someone else that is going to make, that promises to make that payment for you. Let's just say it's God, because I don't know that you'd trust anyone else. God says, I'm making the payment for you. You've been making this payment all along, but I make it each month. You don't need to deal with it. It's done. It's taken care of. Your family's taken care of. You need to reckon that as true. First of all, there's two things you need to know. You need to know it. This is the term it says in Scripture. Knowing this. You have to know it. Most of us don't even know these things are true. And as a result, you can't do anything when you don't know it. It says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And when you never hear it, 
You never know it. As a result, you never live in it. So no one's telling you they're making your alimony payment. Guess what? You're not taking advantage of it. And so each month you're writing it in your own, in, out of your own bank account. You don't have the money. You keep squeezing it out. You're just trying desperately because you're afraid of the penalty that will come if you don't. But that payment is being made. If you know that that payment is being made, what should you do? You should, first of all, once you know it, you should reckon it as true. Which means, adjust your life around it. Make it that reality. If you know that Jesus is paying it, you say, okay, he's paying it. I'm not going to write it out of my own checkbook anymore. My family is better off with a check from God than a check from me. You would reckon it as so. I don't know if that's the best illustration, but that's, you know, at least one that can linger in your mind and give you a concept of what we must do. We must reckon it as so. But first, we must know it as so. That Jesus Christ is sufficient for us. That his shed blood is sufficient. Now we must reckon that is true for the remainder of our days on earth. That the enemy can never hold us under his thumb anymore. That we stand up strong. It is for redemption, eternal redemption, for the purchase of our very beings. For the purpose of giving us life within, eternal life. For the bringing back to life. For sanctification for spiritual and physical healing, for boldness to enter into the Holy of Holies, for the purpose of enabling us to make our daily, hourly, minute-by-minute minute home in Christ Jesus. You see the flow? Jesus wants us to enter in by his blood because he has a purpose with that blood. And that is, he redeemed us. He bought us. Why? So that he could make us his home. Like I said, the cross purchased more than forgiveness. It purchased Pentecost. The opportunity, the removal of the problem with us so that Jesus could enter into us and display his power, his might, his majesty, and his glory to all the earth. That's, that's great. Okay, Hebrews 10. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and, the re and renewing of the Holy Ghost. It is not by works of righteousness that you will ever be saved. You have to realize, when you stand for the holiness of a believer, and you say, God wants to make men holy, holy as he is holy, this is a dangerous message. This is the message you want to skip around. You want to say, you know what, you don't want to give too much information about the blood of Jesus because people will take advantage of it. You know what Jesus did? He went up on a tree and died. And guess what? He gave up his entire life risking the fact that people would take advantage of him. That people wouldn't accept what he had given not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, should we then go on sinning that grace would abound? God forbid. You have given us everything we need. 
Lord, the fact that I'm a merciful father does not mean my children should take advantage of that mercy and violate it daily. But it should spurn a love within my children to desire to please their dad, to desire to live according to his standards. And Lord Jesus, I pray that that same work would be done in us. Lord, you must deal with our sins so that we would be free from the accusation of our own conscience and of the devil that hold us out of your presence. Lord, your blood is able. Your blood is able to bring us into your presence today and tomorrow. And it is also able to empower us moving forward to live the lives that you have called us to live for your glory, for your honor, and your praise. Thank you for your precious blood. Lord, I pray that we'd be able to see it the way God sees it and that we would be able to say with Peter, precious, in inestimable value, it's so, so utterly precious what you have done. Your life was given for us. Lord Jesus, may we live lives worthy of the calling we have received.